The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQers, TV, WXYZ people, all the boat rockers in the house, and anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina, the editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com, and for Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns about I hold to the book, the Bible. As the authoritative Word of God, glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsofLibertyRadio.com and also SonsofLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsofLibertyMedia.com and there's two videos at the top of the page. One on the left side is Bradley's show from yesterday. So if you missed that and you want to catch it up, you can, you can do so up until 3 o'clock this afternoon. Excuse me at which time he'll be live in that area. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on the play button, blow it up whatever device you got, look for the Rumble icon, bottom right-hand corner. Click on that, and you can join us in the chat over there on Rumble. A lot of friends over there this morning. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Yes, it's working today. <laughs> I don't know. It was working fine on my end, and then I looked at the volume, and it was doing something kind of fritzy. So I was just like, okay, nobody can hear anything. What am I doing? It, it, it was a computer glitch, okay? Sometimes those things happen. I don't know what's going on. I added my phone link on there, so I'm thinking maybe that's it, but now I can't find out how to get the thing off of there. So it's working today. Praise God, it's working today. All right? <laughs> While you're over there on Rumble, Sons of Liberty Radio Live is the channel. Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Please subscribe to that channel. Also, before it's news.com, top of the page over there, and we thank those guys for the privilege of being on their uh, platform as well. Right up under where we're streaming live on sonsoflibertymedia.com, you can sign up for our email newsletter. All of the articles for the day go out in that email. So uh, they usually go out late afternoon, early evening. So please be sure and sign up so you get those. By the way, you remember when we had James Roguski on and he was talking about doing your the People's Declaration? Well, you can see top, you guys who are on the video platforms, you can see top uh, story here is screw the who. It's the t it's time the, pe the who heard from the people they mean to rule over. That's my... People's decoration. I just read James's decoration. I thought it was a good decoration. That's what I did. You guys do yours and then put the hashtag screw the who and also the people's decoration on it. Start putting those out on social media. Let's get that thing going. Let's let our voices be heard as much as they will be. Yeah, sure, they censor us. I get it. But you can always reach a few people even when they're censoring you. 
And you know what they say, everybody knows seven people, and those seven people know somebody, and you pretty much tie to everybody around the world. If we just get in, in coordination with one another, we can reach a lot of people, even with their censorship. So let's do that. Make your own video, throw it out there, and, uh, and make it useful. Make it useful. All right. <clears throat> Yesterday, I was going to do the topic that we're going to do today, so I didn't have to rush and put through a bunch of stuff. Again, I just whatever this thing is I, I use this little bitty extension and try, it's called one tab it's great you got a bunch of tabs open you want to keep them but you don't want to you know keep opening it you hit that little button sticks it in a little thing on the side and you just hit restore and it brings them all up so it's really great um, <clears throat> a little extension that you can use on your browser browser called one tab and uh, you can also just save certain ones everything to the right everything to the left the one that you're on whatever you want to do and, uh, and that works out really well. So that's what I did. So with that said, the title of the show today is The Red Heifer Project and the Modern Day Israel Delusion. Now, if you got offended at what I just said right now, just hang with me, okay? Just hang with me. By the way, if you want to call in, you can. If you've got a comment, please stick to the subject, though, okay? Don't call in about something that has nothing to do with this, okay? Because it ain't that day. By the way, this number that's here is not for calling after hours. <laughs> this number here is for calling while the show is live. Please don't call after the show is live. Please don't do that. Call in for the show. 803-619-9855. 803-619-9855. Happy to have questions. Happy to have comments. Uh, even if you disagree with me, that's fine. Um, you know, part of our, our is issue here is to strengthen one another, is to edify and to build up one another. And part of that happens sometimes with correction and instruction in righteousness, reproving, um, you know, what Paul wrote to Timothy, said the word of God was good for. So all of that is good, okay? Uh, so you're welcome to call in, 803-619-9855. Okay, we had a report the other day, and I know some people don't like Mint Press News, Okay. Because there's a Muslim woman who runs it. I get that. I get that. That does not mean that they don't have some good reports out over there. They do. They'll tell you some stuff that your mainstream won't tell you, especially about modern-day Israel. They do have some stuff they'll tell you about them. And rightfully so. Um, so there's a lady over there by the name of Jessica Buxbaum. And uh, she's writing about this Red Heifer Project. Now, I've heard about the Red Heifer Project for probably, gosh, uh, close to 40 years. Because they were talking about all this kind of stuff back in the 80s. Um, they were pushing to rebuild the temple. I mean, one of the most blasphemous things I can think that somebody would do. And I know there's a lot of evangelicals out there that just think this is the greatest thing. They support Israel. They think Israel is God's chosen people. And I'm talking about the modern-day Israel. I'm not talking about biblical Israel. We're going to show you who biblical Israel is, and it ain't modern-day Israel. Okay? I'm just going to let the Word of God tell you who Israel is. So with that said, I want to read... Her, her article is pretty short, but I want to read uh, what she has to say about what Israel is doing with regards to this Red Heifer Project, which is apparently key in these people's minds uh, about 
rebuilding the temple, reinstituting animal sacrifice, the priesthood, all this stuff. By the way, I, how these people are going to sit here and reinstitute the priesthood, they don't have the records of the Aaronic line. Those were destroyed in 70 AD, just like Jesus said they would be. And there, you don't have anything to point back to your line. There's no way you can do it. Unless you're going to fudge, which they are fudging. Why? Because they're trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God. They reject the Messiah that was promised to them. That's what they're doing. They're rejecting the Messiah. I'm going to show you that too, right out of Hebrews chapter 10. That that's what they're doing. So here's, here's the article from Jessica. Since 1967, non-Muslims have been allowed to visit Al-Aqsa. hope I pronounced that correctly. But not pray at the holy site. Yet that status quo is rapidly eroding in recent years as Israeli Jewish settler groups... Notice these are Israelis, not Israelites. Okay? Work alongside the government to take control of the compound. Under Jewish law, the ashes of a red heifer, a young female cow, must be scattered across... Haram al-Sharif, before Jews can ascend it and rebuild the third temple. While the hunt for a red heifer has long been considered a fringe initiative, touted by Temple Mount activists, new research reveals the Israeli government is now involved in the endeavor. Yeah, of course they are. They're antichrist at their core. According to Jewish, excuse me, according to Jerusalem-focused nonprofit Ir Amim, the Israeli government authorities helped the Temple Mount activist group, the Temple Institute, and Bonet Israel, an evangelical organization. See there? Even the evangelicals are deceived by this stuff. New research reveals the Israeli government is now involved in this endeavor. Or, excuse me, I got off where I was reading. An evangelical organization import five cows from the United States last year to be used for the red heifer sacrifice. The Ministry of Agriculture allegedly assisted in bypassing standard regulations in order to import the live cows from the U.S., which is prohibited in a press release. Boney Israel and the Temple Institute claim they received permission to import the cows through the Ministry of Agriculture. The Ministry of Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage also assisted in the project. The Ministry's Director General Net Netanel Isaac, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correct, Disclosed in a speech at the cows' welcome ceremony in September 22 that the agency... They had a welcoming ceremony for the cows. In September 22 that the agency has been funding the development of the Mount of Olives where Temple Mount activists plan to initiate the red heifer ritual sacrifice. Additionally, the ministry is involved in transferring the cows to a visitor center and farm created for the red heifer project at the Tel Shiloh archaeological site in the occupied West Bank. Currently, the cows are being held at Kibbutz, which is a Jewish commune, in the Jordan Valley. One of the cows is reportedly already at the Israeli Settlement Research Center, however. Ir Amin emphasized that while this project is being spearheaded by the current Israeli leadership government, assistance actually began during the previous government under former Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett. Or Benet, I'm not sure how they pronounce it over there. Which was deemed more moderate and politically diverse than Benjamin Netanyahu's present coalition. It doesn't matter. They're playing they're playing the two-party thing just like the United States is. They're they're all advancing the same agenda. Senior Ir Amim field researcher 
Aviv Tatarsky explained that only 15 years ago, the idea of Jews praying at Haram al-Sharif was a radical notion promoted by right-wing extremists, yet now it's firmly rooted in the Israeli mainstream. The change is that nationalistic and fundamentalistic ideologies are dominant in Israeli society, Tatarsky said. They have won over Israeli society. The Israeli ministries involved and the Temple Institute did not respond to requests for comment. Boney Israel could not be reached before the deadline. They go on to say, despite the Israeli government's vow to keep with the status quo of Al-Aqsa, settlers involved in the Red Heifer Project underscore the aim is Jewish ascension on Haram al-Sharif in order to reconstruct the Third Temple, implying the destruction of the Dome of the Rock. That's that big gold dome thing you see right there in the middle of Jerusalem today. And remember, all of this, all of Jerusalem was utterly leveled in 70 AD. But what you see there is not what was there when Jesus walked the earth. It's all been built back up. It was leveled. It could lead to maybe hundreds of thousands of Haredis, which is uh, ultra-Orthodox Jews, or Shepherdists, which are Spanish Jews, who might actually, and we're going to show you they're really not Jews uh, in just a minute, who might actually break into the mosque and cause a real religious war. Dr. Abdallah Marouf, an Islamic history professor at Istanbul, uh, told Mint Press News. I'm just going to skip all that other stuff there. Senior figures involved in this initiative have told media outlets the project's ultimate goal is to rebuild the third, uh, the third temple that was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. The prophecies came true, and the Jews are back in Israel. Byron Stinson, responsible for raising the cattle and bringing them to Tel Aviv, told the Jerusalem Post. Hmm. Now they need to build a temple. But it's like buying a really nice car. If you don't have the key, you aren't going anywhere. The red heifer is the key to making the temple work like it's supposed to. No, friend. Jesus is the key to making the temple be what it's supposed to. It's a shadow. It's a type. Christ is the reality. You see what they're doing. And it's not like they didn't... Look, we can go through the rest of this. Um... You've got uh, this guy, uh, Mamo, M-A-M-O. Uh, this guy is, he told the Christian Broadcasting Network that he bought a plot of land in the Mount of Olives in 2011 meant for performing the Red Heifer Sacrifice. And we hope, quote, that in a year and a year and a half from today, we can make here in this area the ceremony of the Red Heifer that actually will be the first step to the temple. That's what he told CBN. And I'll guarantee you, nobody at CBN uh, took him aside after the interview and said, well, wait a minute. What are you doing? Christ is your reality. Why are you doing this? You're engaging in an abomination before the Lord. Why, why are you doing it? I know you think it's right. Why are you doing it? Well, if you're of the opinion that Israel is right in doing what they're doing here, Hang with me, because I want to show you from Scripture, they're completely wrong. Now, we, I've done, I don't know how many shows we did on Bible prophecy out of Matthew 24. But Matthew 24 doesn't have a third temple in mind. It just doesn't. In fact, I didn't even pull it up, but it's right there in the context. 
It's right in the context. Matthew 24 is, in my opinion, it's so clear if you just read it. If nobody had taught you futurism and you read Matthew 24, you would get it right off the bat simply from the context. Just going to hit this real quick. Remember, Matthew 23 comes before Matthew 24, right? Jesus is leaving the temple. He's pronounced judgments upon the those who had religious authority, the leaders there. By the way, this is what the pre-show music was about. It's an oldie bit of goodie. I, I, I love the song. Secret Ambition. That's what he was doing. He was addressing those who were in authority. They were intimidated by him, and they wanted to kill him. Why? Because he was calling out their hypocrisies. Here's Matthew 24. So he leaves... He tells them their house is desolate. He calls it their house, not his father's house. You remember when he went in and he cleared it out with the whip? He said, you've made my father's house. It should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You're robbing your brothers. You're cheating them. There wasn't a problem with them providing sacrifices for the people. There's a lot of people coming in, and they needed a sacrifice. The problem was in their money changing. They weren't fair with the people. They were cheating them. He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. Then he leaves here and he says, your house is left to you desolate. Ichabod's been written over the temple at this time. The glory has departed. That's what that means. And then he comes out in the very next verse. Remember, there are no chapters and verse divisions in the original text. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Which temple? A third temple? No, Herod's temple. The one that's being constructed at the time that was finished just before its destruction in 70 AD. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another. Is he talking about a future temple, or is he talking about that temple? No, he's talking about that one, the one that they're seeing. See ye not all these things? Don't you, don't you see what's around you? I'm telling you, ain't going to be a stone left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the mountain of olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? What things? That there ain't going to be a stone left upon another among these buildings in the temple that you're seeing that isn't going to be thrown down. Tell us when these things will be. What shall be the sign of thy coming, coming and the end of the, of the world, or the age? Go look it up. That this, the word is aeon. It's the word for age. And then Jesus starts giving them all of the signs. Many of them you can already see occurring in the book of Acts. Many people come and say they're Christ. They deceive people. Wars, rumors of wars, the, the earthquakes. Matter of fact, a lot of what you see in uh, the book of Acts when you're seeing the, the oceans, like the one uh, where Paul is traveling and it just breaks up the ship and everything, all of that's caused from earthquakes. So all of this stuff is in there, and Jesus warns this is what's going to happen. Now, why is it going to happen? I think there's a couple of reasons. The first one is, is it's judgment on Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. That's the first thing. Okay? And that comes straight out of Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. Straight out of it. When you read Josephus... He was not a believer, he was a Jew, or claimed to be a Jew, who was taken captive by the Romans. He was a Jewish general. And 
he wrote these things down, documenting what had happened. In essence, confirming the words of Christ 40 years prior. That this was going to happen to Israel. So it was judgment upon Israel, but it was also the closing out of the old covenant age. What does the writer of Hebrews tell us? He tells us these things are passing away. They're passing away. In fact, when you get to Hebrews chapter 8, this is what it says. Um, let me go up here just a little bit so we get a context for what he's saying. For if that first covenant had been faultless, now he's not talking about Adam, he's talking about the what we call the old covenant, and the old covenant is different than the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, it's all different from those, Okay. All of them are sort of building on one another. Don't get me wrong. They don't, they don't nullify the, the first one, but they're building on it. Or the one that come previous to them. They're building on that. So he said, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you're stuck on... House of Israel, house of Judah, and you're just going to look at a physical line, you don't understand Israel at all. Because in the Old Testament, there were a lot of Gentiles who came into Israel too. It wasn't just people from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, when you see what happens, Abraham and his whole household take the sign of the covenant, don't they? Circumcision. How many guys did he have in his household? And they weren't his family. They, they weren't people that came from his loins. 318 trained men. Remember that? We talked about that when he went to get Isaac. Those people weren't from his loins. They were part of the covenant, though, weren't they? Was Isaac was Abraham a Jew? No, he came from the land of the Ur of the Chaldees. The term Jew wasn't even used for hundreds of years later. He was just one who was in the covenant with God. So he says... I'm going to make this new covenant with them, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now, why is that? It's because God makes himself known to his people. He makes himself known. The people are groping in the dark. Their hearts deceive them. And it takes the new birth. It takes the work of God in their life to renew their will, to renew their minds, to renew their hearts, in order that they might know him. He does that work in us. For I will be merciful to the unrighteous, their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Or, in some translations it says, the old obsolete. Now that which decayeth, and waxeth old, he's talking about the old covenant, all the trappings of the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all that stuff, that stuff is ready to vanish away. That's what he says. 
It's on the cusp of vanishing. It's going to be done away with. And in 70 AD, God put a stamp of approval to do away with it. It's not for anymore. So these people who are trying this red heifer project, rebuilding a third temple, they're working against the Christ. Psalm 2. They're doing the same thing their forefathers did. They want to tear God's bands asunder. And they want to do that. They want to tear it apart. Now, with that said, we'll take a look at a few things. Um, boy, I brought this one up and I forgot what I was doing with it. Uh, <laughs> oh, sometimes that happens, especially when you get a lot of different things going on here. Uh, one of the issues that Jesus comes and does is he fulfills all of that stuff. If you remember, in Luke chapter 24, I believe it's in verse 44, he tells the disciples after his resurrection what? He said, everything that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms wrote are about what? What are they about? They're about me. That's what he says. He says they're about himself. They're teaching about Jesus. Okay? So, why is this hard for people to understand? I mean, even those who are professed Christians, why is this hard to understand? Why do they keep looking for something? Because they're not satisfied with Christ. They're not satisfied with Him. They always want something new. They always want something trivial. They always want something that doesn't address their sin or call them unto holiness or any of that stuff. They don't want any of that. They, they just don't want it. They don't want to hear that. They want an easy believism that doesn't require any repentance, doesn't require any turning from sin, doesn't require any of that stuff. But that's foreign to the gospel, by the way. It really is. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It means you believe who he is and you believe what he said. And you want to follow after him. That's what the disciples did. They didn't just go, yeah, I believe you, Jesus, when he said, come and follow me. No, they dropped what they were doing and they went and followed him. That's what that means. So with that said, you know, we see how the religious people were of the day, and they're very much like that today. For instance, Matthew chapter 12. Take a listen to what happens. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were in hunger and began to pluck the ears of the corn and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, now by the way, if you go back and you read the law, it's just perfectly fine for people to pick the heads of grain, okay, and to satisfy their hunger. It was not okay to pick it in order to bundle it up and then take it and sell it, right? That was not that was not allowed, but to eat to satisfy your hunger was okay to do. It's right out of the law. But the Pharisees had twisted it. Why? Because they were holding to oral tradition later written down in the Talmud. Okay? When they saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. According to who? According to who? According to them, not according to God. And he said unto them, Have you not read what David did? When he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered in the house of God, and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, 
neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple, quote-unquote, profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Why? Because they're doing their work on the Sabbath. But I say unto you that in this place is, listen, in this place is one greater than the temple. There's one that's greater than temple. He's talking about himself. And if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. And he has to confront him again. And when he departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had a hand withered. He's still on the Sabbath, right? And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? I mean, if you have to ask that kind of question, it begs the question of whether or not you even understand what you're doing. We talked about this the other week when we talked about the positive aspect of thou shalt not murder. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? And they asked him this, why? That they might accuse him. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Yeah. How much then is a man who's made in the image of God better than a sheep who's not? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. And I love what he does. Then saith he to the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it, whew, it was restored whole. Mm-hmm. Like as the other. And the Pharisees didn't give glory to God. No, 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 no. The Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy it. How dare he make this man's hand well? How dare he love this man enough to do that? He's violating the law. See the hypocrisy here? This is why he told them, he pronounced all those woes in Matthew 23. He pronounced that on But I want you to notice what he said there. He said, there's one here who is greater than the temple. If you're a person who confesses to be a Christian and you're looking for some temple to be rebuilt in the Middle East, you're looking, you think that the modern state of Israel is biblical Israel and stuff, you really need some repentance here. The changing of mind. You need to understand the reality of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of those things in the Old Testament. In fact, that's what Hebrews is all about. The writer of Hebrews takes everything that was prominent in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, and he brings it out even before the Old Covenant was established. I mean, he's going back before that to Abraham. He's saying Jesus is greater than Abraham. He's greater than Noah. That He was before the Old Covenant, too. He's greater than Adam because he's the second Adam without sin. He's greater than Samson. He's greater than the judges. He's greater than David. He's greater than Solomon. He's greater than the prophets. Why? Because all of them were pointing to Christ. Every one of them were pointing to the Christ. So let's look. Exactly who is Israel? Now, we read Israel in the Old, Old Covenant, okay, and we see how they're set up. Largely, they have been the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Largely, that's what they've been. 
But just as Abraham had 318 trained men that didn't come from his loins, Jacob, when he goes down into Egypt, he takes lots of servants and everything else with him too who don't come from his loins. But they're a part of Israel at that point. They're part of the people of God. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. We see people coming in like, for instance, Rahab comes in out of Canaan there. She becomes part of Israel. You'd say she was the great, 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 great grandma of Jesus and his line. We have Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She comes in. Caleb comes in. These are Gentiles. They're not, quote-unquote, Jews. In fact, the term wasn't even being used then. So you've got all that going on. And then we have this passage. This is another one of my favorite passages out of Ephesians chapter 2. And let's listen to what Paul says. Many of you know, for by grace you say through faith, not of yourselves is the gift of God. Yeah. Everything contained in salvation is a gift from God, whether it's your faith. You, don't, you can't muster that up. We're talking about a supernatural faith God gives to his people. That's one. And then you have repentance. That's got to come too. That's a gift purchased for you by Christ. Right? Mm-hmm. So those are all part of the gift of God. So what do we have to boast of? Christ. We don't have anything to boast of. We can't boast in the temple. We can't boast in the sacrifices, the priesthood, any of that stuff. We can boast in the person of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, the Bible says is our great high priest. He is the only intercessor. That's what a priest was. He was to intercede between the people and God. He was the ambassador, the go-between between the people and God. And Jesus is that. We don't have another one. It ain't Mary. It's not the saints. It's not any of the apostles or the disciples. None of those people intercede for us, guys. I know Rome wants to teach you that stuff, but, but they don't. They're not here. They don't hear your prayers. They're not God. God hears your prayers. And he's got one intercessor, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he goes on and he says this. And we're going to pick up Ephesians 2. And verse 11, then this is after, you know, most of what everybody should know. Some people forget that we're created, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. And then he says, Wherefore remember that ye are being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. So in other words, Jews call you Gentiles because you're not circumcised. You don't, you're not part, you don't even have the cut sign of the covenant which is what circumcision was. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Notice that. The commonwealth of Israel. And what is that? The promises, the statutes, the commands, the judgments, the benefits and blessings of the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers some translations read foreigners. We would understand that probably better. Foreigners. From the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. He's saying, you guys at Ephesus, you were strangers. You're not part of the commonwealth of Israel. 
You don't. You didn't have any hope. You were outside the covenant. Even those inside the covenant had hope, but many of those were not elect either. Think Esau. He was in the covenant, got the sign of the covenant, didn't have any hope. Why? He was not among the elect. Jacob was. What about Ishmael and Isaac? Same thing. Ishmael got the sign of the covenant. The Lord blessed him, but he wasn't part of the covenant. But now, Paul says, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who are sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Yeah, you were foreigners, you were strangers, you were afar off, you, you, didn't have, you weren't part of the covenant. But now, because of Christ, you've been brought nigh by his blood. For he is our peace who hath made both one, both what? Both Jew and Gentile, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, he's made them, what does it say? One, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, the, uh, between here and us is in italics, which means it isn't in the original, but it's put there to help um, fill in the understanding of what they're communicating here. He's torn down a wall between Jew and Gentile. He's made them one new man in Christ. And why did he do this? That he might reconcile both, both the Jew and the Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were afar off, you Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, you circumcised, you Jews, you Israelites. For through him, that's Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, notice this, but fellow citizens with the saints. Citizens of what? Citizens of Israel. Citizens of the New Jerusalem. Citizens of the city of God and of the people of God. That's what you're citizens of now. Your fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's the scriptures. That's all it is. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So listen, when you see all this building, all this push for a temple and red heifers and priesthoods and utensils and all this stuff going on, know this, that is the very Spirit of Antichrist. It is a rejection that the Christ came to do what he did, which was to make from all the peoples one new man in Christ. Never to be separated. I don't know why people want to keep separating people out into Jew and Gentile. The, the way the Bible does it is it starts reversing that. It calls the people in the church, Peter calls them Jews, and he calls the people outside the church Gentiles. That's how he starts identifying it. Pay attention to what you read there about that stuff. When you run across Gentile or Jew, pay attention to who's being spoken about. Because they start reversing it. And I think that's the proper way to see it. The book of Galatians also carries this. I mean, this is another one of my favorites because Paul just lays this out. 
as to what's going on. And it flies in the face of these guys wanting to reinstitute a temple. It really does. Chapter 3, Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Hmm. Interesting. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Did you get that? Even as Abraham believed God, what did he believe him about? Remember, he took and showed him the stars of the sky. He said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as this. And Abraham believed God. There was no action on his part. He believed him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. And then later on, James takes what Abraham did because of his belief in God. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews tells us the reason he was willing to sacrifice Isaac was because he believed God would raise him from the dead because his promise was in Isaac. Abraham believed God in that. Of course, we see the picture of Christ come into the scene, that as Isaac's about to lose his life, what does God do? He stops Abraham and he provides a ram in the place of Isaac. Hmm. Interesting. Know ye therefore that they are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Do you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Hmm? Then you are a child of Abraham. <laughs> you are a true Jew. We're going to see that in just a second. You're a real one, not a fake one. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, this is verse 8, Galatians chapter 3, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Do you know I've told Christians that God, that the gospel was preached to Abraham, and they laugh and go, No, it wasn't. What says it right there? Preached before the gospel unto Abraham. How did he do that? Well, it says here, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And he's going to go through. How are they blessed? In thy seed. And he doesn't say seed as seeds. Talking about his children, he's talking about Christ. And hopefully in November, we're going to bring Bob Sisson back on because he's got a new app with the gospel and the stars. Something that uh, Dr. James Kennedy uh, presented, oh, I don't know, it's probably been 30 or 40 years ago that I saw. And this is what you might call the everlasting gospel. It's the gospel written in the creation itself. So he goes on and he says this, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are under the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. 
And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law brings a curse. Why? When we violate it, it brings curses upon us, not blessings. Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth, or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is, who? Who is that? Christ. Christ. Listen. You cannot say you're part of an Abrahamic faith unless you're going to adhere to Abraham's faith. And that is in Jesus Christ. I know the media wants to say that. I know Jews want to say that. I know Muslims want to say that. But what does Scripture say? What does it say? If you have the faith of Abraham, you're Abraham's seed. Why? Because you have Abraham's faith in the same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, you're not part of an Abrahamic faith. You're part of a religious cult is what you are. And I'm not trying to be nasty or mean or talk down to people. I'm just saying that's what it is. That's what he's laying out. This is how serious this is. I meet Jews and Muslims who tell me how much they love Jesus and they, th they think Jesus is great. There, there are actually those who think that. But they don't believe what he says about himself. They think somebody's changed that. They think somebody's messed with the text or whatever. No, they haven't. He said what he said about himself and either he's lying and he should be rejected or he's telling the truth and we should bow our knee to him. I choose to do the latter. So he comes on, and, and Paul continues here in Galatians chapter 3. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. The law is not something evil, it's something that's holy. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should, come, should have been by the law. Yeah, we need a righteousness that comes outside of us, it comes from somebody else who is righteous, because men are not righteous. They're fallen sinners. They need a righteousness that comes outside of themselves, and that's why we need Christ. He grants us, as David says, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute his sin. He doesn't charge it to his account. Rather, the sinner's sin, his debt, 
has been put on the tab of the Lord Jesus. It's been charged to his account, and he suffered for it. And his righteousness has been attributed to us and to our account. A righteousness in which the Father looked and he said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise be of faith, uh, by faith of Jesus Christ, might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore the law was our schoolmaster. What does it do? It brings us to Christ, that we might be justified, not by the law, but by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now some people think, well, I had faith, so I can just... The law doesn't matter. It doesn't instruct me at all. I can just go on and sin and do whatever I want to do. Where did you get that idea? How is it that Jesus died for your sin, but you want to continue on in it? How does that work? That doesn't make any sense. He says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. See that? Ephesians 2, right again. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's not bond nor free. There, and I'm not saying these things don't take place in life, neither male nor female. We know there, there is. But in Christ, they're all one. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. Now, who's the real Israel? Those who have the faith of Abraham, they are Abraham's seed. They're the real Israel. And why are they the real Israel? Because they're in the true Israel, the vine itself. Romans 11 talks about this. We might have time to hit that this morning. We're probably going to go over just a little bit. Romans 11 talks about this. He is the vine. The vine supports the branches, doesn't it? And he warns Gentiles, don't be puffed up. Don't, don't you know, cut down these, these guys who are my countrymen. Because you've been brought in, you've received the promises, and they haven't. Don't do that. Because you may have come into the covenant, but God will cut you off too, just like he did them. If you're going to fall away, if you're going to behave like that, he'll cut you off too, just like he did them. Paul tells us in a couple of places, Romans chapter 9, he tells us not everybody who claims that they're of Israel is Israel. Not everybody that claims they're a Jew is a Jew. Romans 9, for instance. What does he say here? For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ my brethren. He's talking about those of his countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh, not according to faith, but according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. And he doesn't talk about those things as though they're some kind of evil, wicked thing, because they're not. God set them up, but he set them up in order to do what? Well, he set them up so that they would point to the Christ that he was going to send. Whose are the fathers and of whom are concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Did you get that? 
but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. What's why didn't he why didn't he make mention of uh, uh, Ishmael? Because he's making the distinction that I just made. Romans chapter 9, that's what he's talking about, verse 7. Everybody that came from the line of Abraham and even those who came outside of that into Israel some were his children, some were not. Did they have faith? Did they have the same faith that Abraham had? Then they are his children. If they didn't, they are not. It's, it's, this is pretty simple. It really is pretty simple. Romans chapter 2. This came obviously before Romans chapter 9. I should have read it first, but listen to what he said. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. You can boast on your foreskin being cut off if you're keeping all of the law. Otherwise, it's just a sign of God's covenant that he's just as serious about the curses as he is the blessings. If you're not going to keep the law, you're going to get the cursings, right? But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcised. It means nothing. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, that's the Gentile, keep the righteousness of the law, they do this by nature. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. You can put your little yarmulke on, you can put your phylacteries on, you can put your Star of David, which has nothing to do with biblical Israel at all. Go do your study on that. That's a cult. It's actually a cultic. You can do all that all you want to. And you're going to be judged as well. And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfilled the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But... He is a Jew who is one inwardly. What does that mean? And circumcision is that of the heart, not of the flesh, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Listen, friend, if you haven't had your heart circumcised, I don't care if you've had your organ circumcised. If you haven't had your heart circumcised, you are not a Jew. You are not a child of Abraham. You do not possess the faith of Abraham. You need a heart transplant, and only Christ can do that. Bradley, be with you at 3. We'll be back in the morning at 6, and we'll see you on the other side of this. Lord willing, 6 tomorrow. I don't want to presume upon God. James tells us not to do that, and so we say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that. Okay, so tomorrow, 6 a.m., Lord willing, we'll be with you. Okay, I want to welcome everybody coming over from the radio and that was the end of uh, the passage there on Romans chapter 2. Now, let me hit this real quick. I just kind of want to jump down. because I'm going to give you just a little bit, but I want to jump down to the very end um, where all this is. Okay, so um, Romans 11. And, uh, oh, I don't know what just happened. I hit a button and it shot me off on another page there. So, Paul is writing about Gentiles coming in to the commonwealth of Israel in Romans 9, and he's talking, except he doesn't use that language, he uses that of a vine. And he talks about how certain uh, Israelites 
were cut off. They were branches on the vine that were cut off because of their lack of faith, because of their disobedience. And he cut them off and he pitched them. And then he took the wild vine, that's the Gentiles, and he grafted the branches into the or grafted the branches into the vine. And the vine is Christ. That's that's his whole argument. I'm not going to read the whole passage. That's what his argument is. And he's telling the Gentiles, be careful. Don't get puffed up about yourself because you didn't put yourself in the vine. Christ did that. And don't be bad-mouthing the people that got cut off. Okay? Because if God cut them off, he'll cut you out too. That's what he tells them. And he comes down, and this is Romans chapter 11. I want you to notice what he says. Let's begin at verse 24. This is kind of coming at the end of that whole uh, argument that he's putting there. For if thou were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel. And he's talking after the flesh. That's what he's been arguing uh, up until this point, the Israel after the flesh, his countrymen. Okay? So he says, um, it's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, Paul was already saying, I'm a part of the eye-opening. Remember, Paul was not always the way he was. He was just like those he's talking about, like his countrymen. He was blinded. He thought he had kept the law. That's what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to be circumcised, supposed to keep the law. He's doing all this kind of stuff. Okay? Um, so, so there it is. So, um, I don't know what's going on here, Reza. We're, we're not doing stuff like that, bro. Yeah, we're not going to be... We're not going to be spamming the chat. Sorry. Um, he goes on and he says, and he says, uh, the, fullness, the, the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant of them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. Remember, he's writing to the Roman Christians. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. And Father's is plural there. Okay? For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Whose unbelief? Israel's. O covenant Israel. Even so, these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. All the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. That's exactly right. Amen. But what did he say up here? He said, all Israel will be saved. Okay, so we have a couple of choices here. We can say, all the people who are ever of Old Testament, Old Covenant, geopolitical Israel will be saved. 
and all those who call themselves Israel up into the modern day are going to be saved, or he has in mind that Jews and Gentiles who have been put into Christ are the Israel of God, just as, well, let's just uh, jump right here. Um into Acts chapter 7, just so people see this, because I know a lot of people don't see it, but this is Stephen standing before the Sanhedrin, and what does he say? He's given them an account of their history, and he builds up to this point, and here's what he says, verse 38. This is he, and he's talking about, let's back up to 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him ye shall hear. And he's going to tell who that is. This is he that was in the, what's that word there? What, 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 what is that word? Church. The ecclesia, or some people say the ecclesia. Ecclesia. That was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him on the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to given us. What's he talking about? <laughs> Church, ecclesia, assembly, the people of God. That's what that is. That's what that means. Doesn't mean anything different in the New Testament than it did in the Old Testament. There was an ecclesia in the Old Testament. That's what Stephen says. They were in the wilderness. They were there at the Mount when the law of God was given to Moses and when he came down to them. That was the ecclesia. That was the assembly. The people of God. Hmm. The church is not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament one that continues. This is why when people accuse people like myself of being those who are replacement theologians. We're not. Now, there may be some people out there like that. I don't know. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it is an ongoing covenant, that all of the covenants are bound up in one big one, the promise between the Father and the Son that Titus tells us about that took place before time began. A promise from the Father to the Son to give him a people for his inheritance. And the Israel of the Old Testament just extends out into the New Testament instead of there being a small number of quote-unquote Gentiles coming in. It's largely, the New Testament church is largely Gentile. But they've been made what? What did we just read? Children of Abraham. They've been made the true Jew, if you want to call it, if you want to make reference to that. They are made, if you are in Christ, you are a true Jew. You've had your heart circumcised. If you haven't, you're still outside the commonwealth of Israel. I don't care if you call yourself an Israeli. I don't care if you call yourself a priest, a Jew, or any of that stuff. And you know, sadly, even within Christian circles, you get this, th these, these little sects, we're Messianic Jews. No, you're not. You're either a believer or you're not. There is no, well, we're Messianic Jews and we're Hasidic you know, Christians and no, no, no. You are either one man, one new man in Christ, or you're not. Get rid of the trappings of all your little sects. 
and get into Christ. Because your sex don't save you. And I'm using sects. S-E-C-T-S. They don't save you. Your Seder meals don't save you. Your temple doesn't save you. These sacrifices they're wanting to do in the red heifer, they don't save you. Let me tell you something. They damn you. Because you're giving another gospel. Paul says, any other gospel than what I preached, let that man be anathema. Let him be accursed. He is God damned. Why? Because he brings a God damned gospel to people, which doesn't save them. It doesn't save them. So you can go on and build all the temples you want to. Knock yourself out. You can kill all the people you want to in order to get that land. And you're just as much a child of the devil as the people that you're against. Just telling you that that's what goes on. Notice that <clears throat> this Christ that we talk about, Colossians chapter 2, this is what it says about him. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit and the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In who? In Christ. Oh. Well, how does the fullness of the Godhead dwell in just a mere man? Unless he's a part of that Godhead. Hmm. Yep. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. This isn't, <clears throat> again, this isn't a New Testament concept. When you go to the Old Testament, you hear the people being told, circumcise your hearts. Yeah, there was a command to circumcise the flesh, too, but there was a command to circumcise your hearts before the Lord. And here's the writer telling us this in Colossians. And whom ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Did you hear that? Are you putting off the body of the sins of your flesh by the circumcision of Christ? Is that what you're doing, or are you continue to wallow around in them? Because if you're continuing to wallow around in them, you haven't had your heart circumcised. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him, through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Hmm. The cross was not defeat. The cross was victory. This is how twisted Satan and his demons and wicked men who would follow after them are. This is how twisted they are.
They looked to the cross and thought, we've done it. Kill the Son of God. They forgot that he was going to arise three days later, didn't they? They forgot that. But the writer of Colossians says he triumphed over them at the cross. Not just at the resurrection, at the cross he did that. He gained the victory there. All right? Real quickly, I'm going to show you another one here. And this comes from, <clears throat> excuse me, Hebrews chapter, well, we've already read Hebrews chapter 8, where he's talking about that old covenant is, pa- is about to pass away. Now, Hebrews is written just before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. In fact, I think all of the New Testament books were completed by 70 AD. And he says, it's getting ready to go away. Why? Because he's going to establish the new. He's going to establish the new. And he moves over into chapter 10, and here's what he says. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So they can sacrifice all they want to. They can kill all the animals they want to. They can pray all they want to. But it doesn't make them perfect. It doesn't give them righteousness. It doesn't take away their sin. It's only pictures. And how do we know this? Because he tells us right here. In those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible. I want you to get that in your head. Especially when you're hearing about this temple over in pseudo-Israel. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now, I've heard Christians, professed Christians, say that people in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law and people in the New Testament were saved through faith. That is just utter blasphemy. I, I don't. I, everybody in the Old Testament was saved the same way somebody is in the New Testament. They had faith in God. They believed God, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. That's what we read. Paul's argument is in Romans about Abraham. And they evidence it in their life. And this is what James talks about when he takes the same Abraham and he goes, he wasn't justified by faith alone, but by works. And what's he talking about? He believed God to the point that he acted. He didn't just say, hey, I got it up here. I believe you, Lord. No, no, no. He started acting as though he believed the Lord. Did he have some stumbles along the way? Yep, sure did. Told Pharaoh his wife was his sister. That nearly got him you know, in big trouble. And yet, even in that, because of God's covenant and God's faithfulness, what did God do? God blessed Abraham as he went out of of Pharaoh's house. And that doesn't justify Abraham in what he did and his lack of faith, but he did believe the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So here we're saying, yep, it's not possible for the blood of animals to take away sin. They were just a picture of the one who would come and take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Now I hear people say goofy stuff about how the Holy Spirit went in and had sexual intercourse with Mary and all this. And yes, there's language to that effect of he comes into her. But the fact of the matter is, is the Bible talks about God creating a body. Doesn't say he used her egg. Doesn't say he used a man's sperm. 
doesn't say any of that. He created a body in which the Lord Jesus went and he dwelt in it. And that's what he says here. A body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thou wouldest not. God's not interested in your animal sacrifices. He's not interested in that. Especially now, it's an abomination to him. It's a stench in his nostrils. Because he's well pleased in his son. And when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then, say he, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He's getting rid of the old covenant, the old covenant ways, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and all that. Now he's establishing a new. It's a new covenant. It's a new Jerusalem. It's a new Israel. Actually, it's an extension of the old Israel. But it's new in, in its scope. It's no longer set in a postage stamp piece of land in the Middle East. It's throughout the world. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's what John writes for us in Revelation. He saves out he saves people out of all of those. It's new. We have a new high priest, one who will never die. One who sat down when he offered one sacrifice. You know there are no chairs in the temple, right? Why? Because the priest's work is never done. But the Bible tells us that Jesus, having offered himself once for sin sat down at the right hand of God. In fact, that's right here in this passage. Let's read it. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, for, that's 1 Corinthians 15, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Why? Because they've been done away with in Christ. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. This is what... I encourage us to do on the weekend. Get together with one another. Spur one another on to love and good works. Edify one another. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You can't go back to, to giving the blood of bulls and goats. He just said they don't take away sin, didn't he? Right at the first part of the chapter? Yeah. There's only one way to take away sin, and that's through Christ. If you're going to reject him, there is no sacrifice for sin. None. Instead, there's a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. And then he says this, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. I mean, if you're just going to say, well, Jesus is just like any other teacher. He's not the Son of God. He's not the one who came and established the covenant. He's not the Messiah. He's not king. That's the way you're going to treat it. Oh, my goodness, friend. You have an expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. That's what the Scripture says about you, if you hold to that. And he says, if there were people who had two or three witnesses under Moses, they died without mercy. He says, of how much sorer punishment will you be, those of you who claim Christ is not what he is and didn't do what he said he, he did? Verse 30, For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. For it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. You know, even when I was in high school, in a public high school, we I can remember 12th grade, we had to read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And there are Christians who actually balk at that. If they'd have written the sermon, they would have said, it's, it's God in the hands of angry sinners. That's how focused they are anthropocentric. They're centered on themselves, on man. And they have a man-centered gospel rather than one that glorifies God. But here we have it. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And we should learn that from what happened to Old Testament Israel, who was unfaithful. We should learn from that, but the church hasn't learned. She's doing some of the same stuff that Israel was doing. Just read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and you'll see, even in the first century... The churches were having, they were having problems too. Read any of, pretty much any of the books of the New Testament that are written to churches for the most part, and you're going to see there was correction that was always going out to the churches. From sexual sin to heresies to bad teaching, all kinds of stuff the church was having to deal with. And how do they deal with it? With the Word? With the Word? It's also interesting... What the Jews of the day in the first century were referred to here. This is from Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. He's writing to the church at Smyrna. 
I know their works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and they're not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That religion, the, the trappings of religion is going to get you every time. The synagogue of Satan. We go over to chapter 3, again, verse 9. We're going to see those guys again. Verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they're Jews, and are not, but do lie. See, they're like, they're like the guys that uh, Jesus ran across, and they said, Abraham's our father. We don't know who your daddy is. You know, you're, you're, a, you're, you're a bastard son. You're born out of wedlock. We know, we know your story, Jesus. And he said, if Abraham was your father, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. You wouldn't be trying to kill me. Instead, your father is who? The devil. Your father's the devil, and his works you're going to do. That's what Jesus said about them. John says, I'll make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they're Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. That's what he's telling the church. They're going to see the blessings on the church. That's what he says they're going to see. Friends, what's going on in Israel is a delusion. It's utterly a delusion. It is not true. It is false. It stands in contrast and in opposition to God, to His Christ, and to his king, and to his kingdom. Truly, they are a synagogue of Satan who want to establish this temple again, the sacrificial system again. Why? Why do you say that, Tim? Those are, those are harsh words. Well, listen, these are the words that God gives us. I just read them to you. Why is that? Because they reject their king. And yeah, Jesus is king over the ungodly just as much as he is the godly. He's their king. And they reject that. And they say, nope, we'll do it our way. We'll do it our way. We don't want your Christ. Psalm chapter 2, let's break their bands asunder. We don't want your Christ. We don't want your commands. We don't want your statutes. We don't want your judgments. We want to feel good in the trappings of our religion. That's what they want to do. And as you see this unfold, I don't care if they build a temple or not. It's an abomination to God. It is a trampling underfoot, the blood of the Son of God and of the covenant for which he spilled his blood to seal. That's what it is. That's the reality. And if you're in a church where a preacher's preaching that nonsense, you need to get out. You need to correct him first and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And you need to take him through the scriptures and show him what side he's on. Because if you're on that side and you think that's okay, you're partaking with the spirit of Antichrist. I, there's no nice way to say it. You cannot hold Christ in this hand and hold the old covenant system 
and all of its trappings in this hand. You can't do it. you got to let go of one or the other. And if you let go of Christ, guess what? There is no sacrifice for sin. We just read it out of Hebrews chapter 10. There is no sacrifice for sin. If you're going to go back to that, no sacrifice for you. You would be wise to hold on, to pursue hard after the Christ. That's what you'd be wise to do. And I'm going to leave you with that today. And I pray that the Lord Jesus, I pray his spirit would draw those who are his people who hear this. Open their ears, open their eyes, that they may perceive the truth and they may follow after it. Not follow after me. Not follow after some church that's been established or whatever. Not follow after an organization. Follow after Christ. All throughout the scriptures, that's what we're told to do. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. John talks about we walk after him. We walk in his footsteps. Whose? Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that stuff that you read in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. There's no need to go back and rebuild it. There's no need to build up all the guys from the Old Testament. We can learn from them. Don't get me wrong. We can take the Old Testament and we can see Christ in virtually every page of the Old Testament. And I think it's a good exercise to go and read the New Testament and see Christ in there. See the promise of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Why? Because he said they talked about him. That's what he said. This stuff that's going on now is an abomination. It's an affront to God. And Christians should not be joining in it and giving it praise. They should be calling it for the wickedness that it is in the rejection of God's Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. Bradley, be with you at 3. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning, 6 a.m., bright and early. Talk to you then.